Okay. Okay. If you guys don't mind just closing the door, thank you. So, um, what I want to discuss with you tonight is not the Gaza war, but it is very much um, important in terms of our outlook on Israel. Um, and I'm going to jump into a little article that was written by a colleague of mine, Rabbi Alan Haber, who did a beautiful job summarizing the debate that still rages in, uh, you know, uh, different parts of the Jewish community, even within the Orthodox community, as to what our attitude is to, um, to Zionism. Okay? Um, and it's really not about the land. We're not talking about the land of Israel. The land of Israel, if you open up a Bible, you open up a Tanakh, uh, there's, there's no controversy in terms of the importance religiously of the land of Israel. What I'm here to talk about is actually Zionism, um, which is the state of Israel and its apparatus, including the army, which obviously is on the front lines right now. I'd like to dedicate the Torah that we study here to our brothers and sisters in Israel. They should be successful, they should be safe. Um, but I'm talking about modern day Zionism, uh, architects, primarily Theodor Herzl, those of you familiar, the great Zionist thinker who uh, convened the first uh, Zionist Congress late 1800s and uh, never even actually lived to see the creation of the state in 1948, but he is, he is uh, really attributed with, um, he's given the credit, he deserves the credit. My daughter just sent me a picture from Israel, I don't know why, but her school was just brought to Har Herzl, which is Israel's national cemetery, and they went to Har... Uh, named after Theodor Herzl, and they went to his grave. And they, um, has anyone been to the Herzl Museum? Actually, in, uh, it's great. It's really well done in Jerusalem. Um, and so my question is, what's the religious perspective on Zionism, which is really more of a secular movement? I'm not talking about the land of Israel, which everybody agrees has got a religious component to it. I'm talking about like 1948. And you'll say, oh, what does it matter? It's a safe haven for Jews. If you're not thinking like I am today with all of the anti-Semitism just sprouting up all over the world, like the Jewish people just need a place to stay. Isn't that just Zionism? And that is primarily where Herzl's Zionism came about, if you know his story. Did I share his story briefly? Theodor Herzl, why he came up with the idea of Zionism, actually? He didn't, what's that? He did. Yeah, we wanna share it just quick? Inspired by the Dreyfus affair. I think Dreyfus was a very assimilated guy in France, and he was in the army, but that didn't stop you know, other soldiers from accusing him falsely. Right, uh, right. And he was actually convicted by a court, a closed court, and Herzl was a reporter. He was a journalist for, a, a, I think, for the Austrian, he was from Austria, for the Viennese paper that was stationed, and he was stationed in, in, in France. And, and Dreyfus was the highest-ranking Jew ever t to reach that level in the, in the French army. And he was there when they convicted him of a crime he never committed. He was accused and convicted of espionage, of spying for the Germans. Um, and, um, and it was complete anti-Semitism. And he was hung. And Theodor Herzl was an assimilationist. He wasn't a religious Jew. And he very much, you know, he thought that the answer to the Jewish problem, what's the Jewish problem, anti-Semitism, was assimilation. If you assimilate into your country and you just become like everybody else, indistinguishable from your Gentile neighbors, 
then you won't be persecuted anymore. And he realized, no, that's not going to change it. They will find you, no matter how assimilated you are. And there's an amazing book written that I read like halfway through. It's, it's called The Pity of It All. Has anyone seen this book? It's kind of an important book. Um, the Pity of It All is a book written about 250 years of Jewish contribution to Germany of like all of the great scholars and intellectuals, politicians, doctors, scientists, and what they discovered, what they contributed to German culture, specifically German culture. And he called it the pity of it all because it didn't really seem to matter how much the Jews of Germany gave to their country or to that, you know, to that degree the Jews of Spain or England or all the other countries where we were eventually kicked out. So um, I'm not here to depress everybody, but that's, you, you should know your history. Um, and and so, so the greatness of Herzl, in my mind, was that he changed his mind. He went from being an assimilationist to a, we need our own country. He was actually open to developing that country in, um, in Africa somewhere. And there were a couple, of, you know, he wasn't, he would prefer the country to be like in our homeland <laughs> called Israel. But um, the question is, what's the religious outlook on that? How, how does someone who's an observant religious Jew who believes in God, who believes in the Torah coming from God, how do you then view Zionism? Because Zionism, who are the, who are the people kind of pushing Zionism? Were they religious Jews? Were they like rabbis with beards, Torah scholars? No, actually most of the early Zionist leaders, beginning with Herzl, were not religious personalities. In fact, some were quite contrary to uh, religion. Some were actually trying to create like a new Jew, if you will, like a new proud Jew that's not the Jew, you know, with a, with a long white beard and the Talmud, you know, pouring over the Talmud, just like, just like somebody who is, um, um, uh, what was I just going to tell you? Someone who is, uh, you know, just more of a nationalist. Okay, so follow with me in this article. I'm going to jump right into it. What is the appropriate spiritual reaction, therefore, to what? To 1948, to 1967, to some of the great miracles that Israel experienced. Because if you don't look at it, let's say you do look at it as having religious significance. I say it. What do I mean by it? I mean Zionism. I mean 1948, independence. Um, how do you celebrate Yom Atzmaut? Do you celebrate Yom Atzmaut as a religious day? Do you celebrate Yom Atzmaut as a secular, nationalistic holiday, like July 4th? Because if you see it as religiously significant, then you should celebrate it as a religious day. And how would that be different? How would, you, how would your observance of Yom Atzmaut differ if you looked at it as a religious day? You'd probably pray different things. Good. You might refrain from going to work, even. You would do some things that Jews do on religious holidays. Okay, but if you look at it as just like a nationalistic day, July 4th, okay. And that's what I want to discuss with you, and there's a, an interesting debate. Take a look. Uh, the 5th of year, 5708, 1948, the State of Israel was declared. Uh, that was followed by the War of Independence, if you guys would like. Um, um, and uh, the victory resulted... Uh, there was a victory. Six Arab armies attacked the fledgling state. We've spoken about that. The victory resulted in the first sovereign Jewish government. 
And then you had the miraculous Six-Day War in 1967. What is the appropriate, next paragraph, spiritual reaction? Many see the hand of God in these events and therefore feel it's appropriate to commemorate these events as days of Hallel, the Hodah. But others, Hallel means like, you know, saying certain prayers and thanking God, but others disagree. And that's, of course, last paragraph, is going to determine your attitude towards Yom Ma'ut. If you believe the existence of state is a good thing, you should feel ob- obligated to thank God in some way. And here's another thing. Does anybody know when Yom Ma'ut always falls out on the Jewish calendar? Something else is going on on the Jewish calendar. It's not terribly well known. Leah? It's, uh, it's the week before Yom HaShoah. It's the week after Yom HaShoah. But what else is happening religiously on the Jewish calendar that would seem to contradict Yom Ma'ut? Like having a, no, it's, it's similar, Tisha B'Av is in the summer, Yom Ha'atzmaut is in May. What always is in May after Passover? What's that? The Sphira period. The counting, commemorating the, keep going, the Omer period is commemorating something very sad that took place in Jewish history. The students of Rabbi Akiva all died suddenly in this terrible epidemic, and there's a kind of a quasi-mourning period that follows the holiday of Passover for 33 days. 33 days. What don't we do during those 33 days? We don't, some, some, some don't shave. We're not supposed to get a haircut, and those who believe shaving and haircuts go together also don't shave. Good. What else? We don't. I used to play in a band. We never got gigs. Oh, a no, Jewish band. No, what's that? We don't play live music. No weddings. Nobody schedules their weddings during the Omer period. It's like a quasi-mournful period. What falls out smack in the middle of it? Yom Ma'ut. So if you're a religious Zionist, so you know what? You take a pause from Sphira. You take a pause from the morning. But if you don't believe it's any more than July 4th, then you don't. And that's why certain parts of the Orthodox community, they don't really celebrate Yom Ma'ut and they continue to observe the morning of, of the Omer during this period of time. So that's what I'm here really to discuss and the difference between the two really is quite significant. And you may be unaware of sort of the different camps in the community. But if you believe, third to last line, that the existence of the state is a good thing, you should feel obligated to thank God in some way, especially for the miraculous fashion, turn the page, in which God gave us back the land. Yet we would still need to discuss which particular methods. And um, I don't know why, if there are any Kabbalistic reasons why the next couple of lines are crossed out. I'm not sure. So I want to just share with you um, three different approaches, okay? One is against, one is neutral, and one is pro. pro. Against Zionism. Now, when I say against Zionism, I'm not talking about the land of Israel. There are a lot of some Hasidic Jews who are against Zionism that live in Israel and still pray at the Kotel every day, right? But they don't serve in the army and they don't believe in the government they don't do anything to harm the government. Yeah, there's a couple of Meshuggah guys you'll see at, the, at, the, at these rallies. That's not who I'm talking about. Those in the Turkarta, there's like 20 of them. They're an unbalanced group and a terrible embarrassment, in my opinion, to the Jewish people. There's a larger group of Hasidim that are anti-Zionist. I don't agree with them, but I want you to understand their perspective. They're not against the land. If they're against Zionism, why would they be living in Israel? Because they'll be like, what do you mean? Jews always try to live in Israel. The land is holy. Is a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel. And that mitzvah preceded Theodore Herzl in modern-day Zionism. You, you follow? So I'm not talking about the land. Don't get confused. I'm talking about the government, the secular state of Israel that we have to this day. And it's complicated because what law, what rules 
does the government of the state of Israel follow? Is it halacha? Does it follow Jewish law? It does not. It follows... Which is basically leftover British common law, upon which most Western liberal democracies are based. Now, there is an exception, just so you know. The rabbinate in Israel does control a few areas of law. Anybody know? And also a point of great contention. Marriage, conversion, and... Military? No. They do not. The government runs the military, big time. What's that? Um, well, anyone can make Aliyah, but if you want to be granted the privileges of being a Jew Aliyah, you have to have a letter written by an Orthodox rabbi, written, written many of these, and the rabbinate has to approve it. I just wrote another one last week for a family here who's making Aliyah, and they're giving me a hard time. Um, because, not, and, and because, because they define who's a Jew, because they're in charge of conversion. Now, we can get into that, and that seems wholly unfair, and the conservative reform movements, this is the bane of their existence. They're very angry, very upset about it. But this is the system that's been set up in Israel. There is a separation, a little, of synagogue and state. We call it church and state here. The synagogue and state, but not so much separation when it comes to those areas. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that, but I also understand that it's easier to separate church and state in America than it is in Israel just so you know, it's quite complicated. They put Sharansky in charge of this problem to make peace between the different Jews. And this man who spent nine years in the Gulag fighting the Soviet, ruthless Soviet, and he was successful about them, but he couldn't fix the problem between the Jews. Not so simple. Um, so we're gonna get into that a little. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the anti-Zionist position. What, what is the anti-Zionist position? Meaning that Israel's great, the land is holy. It's in the Bible a million times. It's a mitzvah to live there. But the government and the, the, the whole ideology fueling modern Israel is not something that they buy. They're not into. And then there's the people that are kind of just parva about it. You know parva? They're not milchiks. They're not fleshiks. They're like in the middle. There's a lot. And then there's the pro. We're very pro here at MJE. We'll get to us soon, Okay. Um, the first approach is the anti-Zionist. This position is most clearly articulated in the writings of the late Satmar Rav, Rav Yol Moshe Teitelbaum. Has anyone heard of Satmir Hasidim? He was their greatest rabbi, probably was a Holocaust survivor, and he uh, was a great, great rabbinic leader. And, um, and it's followed primarily by Satmir Hasidim, as well as a number of other primarily Hasidic groups. Simply put, this is what they believe, the opinion holds that since God put the Jewish people in exile, we have to wait until God miraculously redeems us. Why did we get kicked out of Israel to begin with? Romans. Okay, the Romans. Deeper. Get a little deeper. Uh, We're talking about theologically, spiritually. Baseless hatred. Baseless hatred. The first temple was destroyed because of rampant idol worship. We say in our prayers, Yeah, you're right, it was the Romans. But because, whatever, you could come up with all sorts of reasons why we weren't worthy anymore, and then the temple was destroyed, we were kicked out. So the Satmar Rav says, if God kicked us out, you don't go back until he invites you back in. Here's my way of uh, summarizing the Satmar Rav's position. I've taught this many times. I, they should hire me. I think I do a pretty good job. You, you ready? 
and I'm not trying to make fun of it. This is, this is, this is a, a serious theological position with which I disagree, it, its application. It, you're a parent and your kid does something really inappropriate, so you put him in a timeout. The Satmarav says that what the Zionists did was equivalent to the little boy coming out of his timeout before his parents said it was a time, saying, Mommy and Daddy, I feel rehabilitated and I'm ready to come out and go back into the world. And without mommy or daddy saying yes or no, the little boy just goes back to playing with his Legos like he was playing before. It's chutzpah. Get back in the timeout till I tell you. I put you in the timeout, you know? I, I brought you into this world and I'll, take you, I'll tell you when it's time to come out, you know? Who are you to do this? And that's what the Satmar, that's what Hasidim, some Hasidim. By the way, please do not paint everybody with one broad stroke. The Lubavitch do not hold of this. They got a, a very, I, their, their position is actually very interesting, a little more complicated. They don't hold of this. But there are tens of, if not a hundred, over a hundred thousand Satmar Hasidim living in Israel. And many tens of thousands of Satmar Hasidim living in Monroe and Muncie. My next door neighbor during um, COVID, we rented a place in the middle of Muncie, was a Satmar Hasid who I became friends with. I'm still friends with him. He's an amazing, amazing guy. And they don't, they don't support the government, they don't fight in the army, they don't pay taxes, because they think it's forbidden. So the Satmars in Israel don't pay taxes? No, no. And the Israeli government is okay with that? No. Would you be? They're, they're benefit. Now they try, they try to not benefit from all of the, they actually try not to benefit from, but it's impossible. The, the guys, they're coming to take your garbage. You know what I'm saying? Like they're benefiting from, now, it says, although, now listen to what he says. Although it's permissible, according to the Satmar Rav, for individual Jews to reside in the land of Israel, and may even still be a mitzvah to do so, it's prohibited to organize mass immigration as was done by the Zionist movement. Certainly prohibited to organize a Jewish government and an army to control the country. Since God put us into exile and has not yet miraculously redeemed us from exile, taking matters into our own hands and creating our own state, nothing less than a rebellion against God. And that's why, according to Satmarav, it's forbidden to cooperate, participate with the government. They don't pay taxes. They don't accept government benefits. I, I, I say I'm a little skeptical and cynical on that. How do you not accept? Right now, they're being protected by the IDF. If it wasn't for the IDF, Satmar Jews would be in trouble, just like any other Jew in Israel. Now, they'll say, and I've had this conversation, you know, put this on. My daughter listened to some lecture from somebody in Israel and said, no, we wouldn't need a government. It's like nonsense. If you study the history of the way it was, as awful as it is in Israel now, it was worse before there was a government and, a, and, and an army. Okay, there were pogroms in Israel all the time before there was a, an IDF. So it's important to note that the non-religious nature of the modern Israeli government is not significant here. They don't care it's, they don't care that the government is not religious. That's not their issue. That's going to be the non... That's going to be the parva problem. The parva approach problem, okay? According to the Satmarav, even if every member of Knesset, every government minister and official, indeed every citizen of Israel, would be strictly observant, and even if all the activities were in strict conformity to halacha, the entire enterprise would remain severely forbidden, and indeed he calls it evil. Evil. Uh, somebody once asked them, then how do you explain all the miracles of 67? If this is such an affront to God, how do you explain all these miracles without, without God? 
And he said, and this is very radical, in my opinion, and I have a lot of respect for Rav, Rav Teitelbaum. I studied other his writings and teachings, and he's a brilliant rabbi. He said this was not God, this is the Masa Satan, it's like the Satan, it's all these, these negative evil spiritual forces trying to get you to think it's God, but, the, but you gotta stay away from the very anti. Now, it's a minority opinion. Most Orthodox Jews do not subscribe to this view. It's a pretty radical view, okay? Um, but it is held by some. Now, I want everyone to understand, Satmar Jews have never showed up and would never show up at a meeting holding a, you know, a Hamas flag like the Natura Karta do. Uh, they, they don't do anything, God forbid, to harm. They live their lives. They're nice. They're good people. They take care of each other. Um, not just my no next-door neighbor. I've met dozens of Satmar Hasidim. For some reason, our bus drivers on the ski retreat are always Satmar Hasidim, and we spend all Shabbos with them. And I have two or three friends who I request to be our bus driver on the, uh, because they're so much fun, and they bring their own challah, and they get up, and they love Jews. They love all Jews. But this is their position, and that's the anti-position. Any questions before we get to the neutral position? Yeah, please, Tracy. By the way, there's more details to it. You can read it on your own. There's some passages in the Talmud they point to, but I, I don't have the time, and I don't want to get hooked on that. Yeah, go ahead. That's okay. Yeah, it would have to be. That's an excellent question. It would have to be clear. It would have to be clear that God sent, like the Mashiach. Now, there are criteria for believing someone because we've had individuals in Jewish history that have claimed to be the Messiah. Um, there was a pretty popular one. His name was Jesus. Okay. <laughs> um, and we rejected all of them, not because we just reject everybody, because the prophets make it pretty clear what the Mashiach is supposed to do. Messiah is supposed to be a certain kind of personality, a, a religious personality who is able to bring people back to their Jewish tradition, bring Jewish people back to the land of Israel, and um, reinstate the temple, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, uh, and here's the big kicker, universal peace and brotherhood, okay? And until that happens, you can claim to be the Mashiach, and you know, like some Lubavitchers believe that the, uh, the rabbi of Chabad, the late and great Rav Schneerson, was, was the Mashiach, so he had, he had some of the criteria. He was a single individual who was probably more responsible for reinforcing the breaches in Jewish observance and bringing Jews back to Yiddishkeit and to Judaism. Um, but he died before doing all the other things. And once that happens, you know, by definition, such an individual cannot be considered the Messiah. So that's what they would need, you know. And... Um, you know, there was a, a term we learned in, was it, re, it was a Latin term, res ipsa laquiter. It was like, uh, the thing for speaks for itself. Like, you'll know, when the Mashiach comes, you'll know, kind of thing. Because it's pretty clear all the things that the Torah says. That's what they're waiting for. Until the Mashiach comes, right, you can live in Israel, but you can't form a government or anything like that, because then it's like, you're pulling yourself out of that big time out. And he also, I want to get into it, the next page talks about this passage in the Talmud, that there was some kind of deal made between the Jewish people and the Gentile nations when we were being kicked out of Israel, that they would not persecute us and we would not 
uh, organize um, and take Israel by force. And the Satmar Rebbe claims that we did just that. We took Israel by force. Now the response to that is, we didn't take Israel by force. Everybody who's in this course knows what we talked about like, two weeks ago. How was Israel created? The United Nations, representing the nations of the world, voted in favor of partition. A state for the Arabs, a state for the Jews. Israel was not taken by force. People think it was taken by force because what happened the day after partition? Five Arab armies attacked and we defended ourselves and there was a war. Okay? Just like what's happening today where people say, oh, you know, Israel is always fighting the Arabs. Yeah, that's what happens when you get attacked. You try to fight back. Um, we have to keep reminding the world of that. Yeah. No, they don't vote. No, they, don't. they don't participate in elections. Oh. Anything that would sort of lend credence to the government, to the municipal apparatus of, of, of a government, of an army, they're very much against. Because they think that that's what crosses the line. In fact, my, my next door neighbor, I did not know this, he had never been to Israel. And my, Joe and I invited him and his wife for dinner, and, and he was going to Israel for the first time. And, um, and his Satmar friends were telling him, don't go to the Kotel. I was like, why can't you go to the Kotel? I see Hasidim at the Kotel all the time. The Kotel is so affiliated and associated with modern day Zionism because it was taken back in the Six Day War that some of them say you shouldn't even go to the Kotel. Like, don't go anywhere near that smells of Zionism. Very, very, you know. But, they, but again, they do it, in my opinion, in a respectful manner. They're not doing anything, God forbid, to put Israel, you know, at harm. But it does create animosity, as you can imagine. We're in the middle of a war. And if you have, your son is on the front line, and we just lost a whole group of holy Israeli soldiers. And, um, and your kids are on the front line, and some other Israeli mother, you know, because you have this view on Zionism. You know, so obviously this creates real animosity in Israel, in real tension. I, we, we have to somehow learn to respect each other and love each other. Uh, there was a lot of divisiveness before this war broke out. There's a lot of unity, and I, I don't want this to be misunderstood. We have to learn to respect other people's points of view, even if we don't agree with them. And this was a great rabbi, and this was his position. Um, I mean, my feeling is, is that, like, even if you can't, and, I, and we're seeing this in the war now, even if you have this view, and therefore you can't... Like I once went to a dinner of a very ultra-Orthodox yeshiva and there was a, a terrorist attack that day and I went over to the head and I said, I, I, I think it would be appropriate if somebody got up and prayed. And they didn't want to do it because it was an attack in Israel. It was, it was kind of like one of the... And I said, just pray for the Jews. Forget about Zionism, forget about the government. They're nice Jewish boys that were killed. Okay, pray for the boys. And he did. Because if you take it out of the political Zionist realm, it's just Jewish people. So what you are seeing today, I am seeing, I don't know if you've seen any of these clips on your Instagram reels, but of Hasidim going to army bases. And by the way, there are over 2,000 ultra-Orthodox Jews that joined, that are on the front line right now, you should just know. There's a Nachal Haredi, and I'm going to get, this is a more of a minority extreme position, I'm going to get to the more mainstream ultra-Orthodox position, then I'm going to get to the modern Orthodox, which is the pro. Okay? Okay. What's the mainstream position? 
the mainstream ultra-Orthodox, the parva, is that they're not against, but they're not for. Because they're just into Torah. So if the government of Israel is going to promote Torah, great, let's support it. If the government of Israel is not going to promote Torah, and they're going to allow for the violation of Torah, mm, we're not going to have it. it. The government itself has no religious significance. just the government. And they view the government of Israel no different than any European government that their, their bubbies and zadis lived under. What do you do? You try to get, hello Rabbi Ezra, you try to get your, your, you try to get the government to be positively predisposed to your position. If you're living in Hungary, you're living in Germany, you're living in France, you try to, but does the government of Hungary, France, or Germany have religion? No, we just want, we just want good things for the Jews. So that's the way they are. This is the middle, the middle mainstream approach, what I call the Parva approach. The government of Israel itself has no inherent religious significance. And how could it have inherent religious significance, they argue? It's not run by halacha. It's not run according to Jewish law. It's just a regular government. So to the extent, that's why I never understood, if they're, if they're anti the government, then why are they in the government? You, you see the Knesset, is, the Knesset has guys with beards and long, big black kippah. You know, why are they in the government? If they're not anti. They're in there so they can get their agenda across. Just like anyone in this great country, you have a certain slant. So what, 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 what do they want? They want funding for the, for the yeshivas. They, they don't want the buses to run on Friday nights, you know, so that more Jews will observe Shabbat. So that's what they push for. And that's called the neutral view. Okay, it's a simple view. To the extent, and they'll celebrate the government when the government does a mitzvah, and they'll denounce the government when they do what they consider to be an avera, a sit. Uh, but there's nothing inherently evil about it, like the Satmar believe. There's nothing inherently positive about it, like the third approach, which I'm going to get into in a minute. Any questions just about, about this approach before I get there? Is that clear? Makes sense? This is fun stuff, no? Did you ever even know this stuff existed? It's crazy. There's like five Jews in the whole world and we have 60 opinions. It's unbelievable. No, just three approaches. That's it. Okay. The other approach is to say that there's some kind of religious significance in the government, in the state itself. And I'm going I'm to throw this out to you guys. Okay? You're religiously minded individuals. What is religiously significant about the government of Israel? And don't talk to me about the land. We're not here to talk about the land. I made that clear in the beginning of class. The land is holy. Everybody says the land is holy. I'm talking about the government, the Knesset, the army, the municipalities, the way Israel runs today. What religious significance could you attribute to it, if there is any? Yeah. So to make Aliyah, you have to be Jewish. In or, um, well, first of all, you can, you can live in Israel not as a Jew. Well, citizen. Sorry. Right, to become a citizen. Good. Right, and, and what's religion? Um, so where's the religious significance? Keep going with that, Henry. King David had court system. There was a functioning government that existed in ancient times. Okay. Good. And what does a functioning system do? What does that allow you to do? If you have a court system and you have a this, what does it allow the Jewish people to have? Prosperity. Freedom, prosperity, sovereignty. That is religiously significant. To be able to live as independent people, even if, 
even if the Mashiach has not come yet, because we're living in a weird time. We're back in Israel, we have our own government, but we don't have the temple. So is any significance? Does anybody know the last time in Jewish history we had such a situation, except we did have a temple? And that, of course, was the Hanukkah's time, where we reinstated sovereignty. And that was, didn't we, wait, we have a holiday called Hanukkah. Why do we have a holiday called Hanukkah? Why do we have a religious holiday called Hanukkah? What's the religious significance of kicking the Greeks out? Okay, so yeah, there was a miracle of God, so same thing today, miracle. Was there no miracles in 67? I don't know, there were about 55,000 Holocaust survivors, stragglers in the Palmach fighting five Arab armies in 1948. And somehow we beat them, we won. A lot of miracles. So if you view a miracle as, as an expression of God, shouldn't you recognize it in some kind of way? And there were two great rabbis that viewed Israel, modern Zionistic Israel, as having inherent religious significance. One in Israel and one in America. Does anybody know? The one in Israel's name was Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. He was the first chief rabbi of Israel, even before the state was created. And he very much believed in a messianic kind of approach to religious Zionism. He believed that, the, that Israel, modern Zionism, has religious significance because it's not the Mashiach, but... It's prep. Prep Mashiach? Good, keep, keep playing with it. How do you guys think? What do you think we're living? What kind of times? We know the Mashiach is not here, but is, are we complete like, like in the opposite? Are we in any kind of special? Are we close to the Mashiach? Like, it's hard to kind of... Does anybody know the prayer we say every Shabbos? We put the Torah away, we're about to put the Torah away, and we refer to the government and the state of Israel as three words. Reshit, the beginning. Smichat, the flowering. Reshit, smichat, geulatenu, of our redemption. Now that prayer is a modern prayer, co-authored by... um, Rav Herzog, former chief rabbi of Israel, and Shai Agnon. Shai Agnon is a great Nobel Prize literature writer in Israel. Not a religious personality. And they co-authored it. What do you think they're trying to capture in those three words? The beginning of the flowering of our redemption. Very vague. Is it the beginning of our redemption or not? No, it's the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. What's the redemption? What do we say? What do we mean when we talk about redemption? The Mashiach, the Messiah. So, I don't know, was Ben-Gurion the Mashiach? First Prime Minister of the State of Israel? But was he nothing? Was it like just another country? It's another government? The United States, Hungary, Italy, Spain, Russia, Poland? No. Rav Kook believed that it wasn't the Mashiach, but it was the beginnings of the Mashiach. And there's a, what's that? Journey towards. Journey towards and the beginning, actually, of the unfolding. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, um, I used to pray really hard the night before math tests <laughs> and checkups at the doctor. I used to pray really hard that the Mashiach would come, like, that night. Because then I wouldn't have to go, you know, go to the doctor and get, like, you know, a jack, and jack, I hated like shots, I still do. 
and I wouldn't have to take the miserable, the miserable math test. Mashiach would come, and I'd be on this, like, El Al, like, first class, right to the King David, and my life would be perfect, because that was my concept of the Mashiach. But the Mashiach doesn't have to happen, in fact, most don't believe it happens overnight. The Mashiach is something which is a process. And Rav Kook, who was a great Talmudist from Europe, and also a great mystic, believed that Jews coming back to Israel in such big numbers, resettling the land and making it flourish again, was not the Mashiach, but the beginning of the Mashiach. And therefore, whatever they were doing was holy. And that's why Rav Kook, he had a long black coat, long white beard, he was like the real rabbi deal. He was an awesome genius of Torah. He would go to these very secular, anti-religious kibbutzes. He would hug the pioneers. He would give them a kiss. He would tell them that they're holy people, that they're bringing the Mashiach. They thought he was crazy. He was like, well, Mashiach, we're just drying up the swamp so we don't get malaria. We, we left Europe because there was a pogrom there, and this is the land of our forefathers, and this, we need a country. But Rav Kook was like, okay, fine. You're bringing the Mashiach. Is the Mashiach here yet? No, clearly not what's going on, but it's called in Hebrew, it's Aramaic, Atchalta de Gula. It's not the Gula, it's not the redemption, but it's the beginning of the redemption. And that's a very messianic view as to why the modern state of Israel has kind of religious significance. Inherent religious significance. Even if it doesn't follow halacha, even if they follow British common law, they don't follow Torah law, he still hugged these people. He felt that they were doing something holy because they were bringing the, the world closer to the Mashiach. That was Rav Cook's view. I'm going to give you the other view here in the United States. The greatest rabbi who you hear me quote, quoting incessantly, his name was Joseph B. Soloveitchik. And Rav Soloveitchik was a great religious Zionist thinker. He actually left the most prestigious rabbinic association that his father and his grandfather led for decades over this issue. It was called the Aguda. The Aguda is still a very big organization. And that's the ultra-Orthodox Rabbinic Association that has some of the greatest Torah scholars, including the Soloveitchiks. And he left that group and joined the Mizrahi, which is sort of like the modern Orthodox group, because the modern Orthodox group was Zionist, religiously Zionist. And he very much believed, not because of what Rav Kook said, because the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, did not subscribe to the whole Messianic thing. He's like, maybe it is the Mashiach, maybe it's not, I'm not a prophet. But I will tell you that it is God's hand. Nobody can deny, he wrote, and he wrote a whole treatise, that what happened in 48 and later in 67 was an expression of God's hand in history. I can't tell you if it's the beginning of the Mashiach, but to look at those events and to say, eh, it's just another government, it's just another country, and not to see it as an expression of something spiritual, he felt that that was the ultimate in denying and almost being ungrateful. And he wrote a famous treatise on this. It's called Koldo Di Fake. Behold, my beloved is knocking. He was very poetic the way he wrote. And he worked off a phrase found in Solomon's, King Solomon's book of the Bible called The Song of Songs. Has anyone heard of that in the Torah? Shir Hashirin is very beautiful. And in that book, Solomon describes this love relationship between a man and a woman. And somehow they, the trust was broken and these two people that were passionately in love with each other break up. It's in the Torah, by the way. Now Solomon is talking about God and Israel. It's a metaphor. 
But they break up and the woman is crying and she's very upset and she's in her bed and he's banging on the door. This is in the psukim, it's in the verses in the Song of Songs. And he's begging for a second chance. And she's yelling, go away, I'm already undressed. Like, I'm done, I'm going to sleep, I can't deal with this. I, I have to move on. And he's banging. And it says, kol dodi do fake, behold my beloved is knocking. And then eventually he gives up. And he leaves, and then she comes to her senses, and she runs to the door, opens the door, and he's not there. And, and he starts running through the streets, have you seen, she starts running through the streets, have you seen my lover, have you seen my lover? It's like this, <gasps> and Rav Salvechik took that, took that from the Torah. And he said, and he wrote this, by the way, in, in, the, in those years, in the 50s. He said, that's the way the Jewish people felt after the Holocaust. We were the woman lying in bed crying, and God was knocking at our door with the state of Israel. We were crying, licking our wounds from the Shoah. And God was giving us a knock on the door. Look at these miracles, Israel. And we, were, we can't. And he was talking to his colleagues that could not accept the state because the people you know, promoting the state, as I said, were not religionists. And, 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 and he was saying, Hashem is knocking at our door. And we have to answer the door. And he went through, and I, I don't have it here, but oh, actually, look at that. Last page, turn to the last page of the handout. He went through six knocks, and my cousin actually, um, Moshe Sokolo, who's a great scholar, uh, summarized this from the article, the six knocks of religious Zionist opportunity. How did God knock on our door? In six ways. One, I'm sorry some of this is cut out. From the, the, the knock of opportunity was heard in the political arena. No one can deny that from the standpoint of international relations, the establishment of the state of Israel and the rest is cut out. But what is he saying there? <laughs> if anybody knows, and we talked about this two weeks ago, was it not a miracle? Now you would think, how is it a miracle that the, after the Holocaust, we would have a little sympathy for the Jewish people and they would, they would vote in favor of partition? How many weeks ago was it that 1,500 Jews were killed in one day? Three weeks ago. I wrote about this the next day. I said in a few weeks, the world is going to forget about that and the world is going to focus on all the innocent Palestinians that are being killed. They're going to forget about the hostages. They're going to forget about the brutalities and the atrocities. Okay? And don't think just because there was a Holocaust that everybody would just vote in favor of a state. The United States of America, it wasn't even so clear. Harry Truman was going to vote in favor of partition. The State Department in this great country was pressuring him to vote against partition, not to grant the Jews a state, because it would stop all the Arab oil coming into the United States. And I told you that whole crazy story, and the Soviet Union voted in favor of partition. The Soviet Union, who ruthlessly persecuted Jews for decades behind the Iron Curtain, Crazy miracles, things happened in the UN. Look what's going on in the UN today. Okay? And um, he says that was the first knock. That was like a knock on the door. Second knock, he said, the battlefield. The small Israeli defense forces defeated the mighty armies of the Arab country. And I'm hoping we're going to see that knock again. 
I'm really hoping we're going to see that knock again. The third knock, the beloved began to knock on the theological tent. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this. All the claims of Christian theologians that God deprived the Jewish people of its rights in Israel and all the biblical promises regarding Zion and Jerusalem refer allegorically to Christianity publicly refuted by the establishment of the state of Israel. I mean, what were Christians, Christian leaders for centuries? Every time a Jew got beaten up, they said, well, there you go. This is what happens when you reject our God. And then when the state of Israel was created, it threw all of that Christian theology up in the air. And he said that that was a knock. My fourth is, uh, the fourth one is my favorite. And that is the knock in the hearts of the perplexed and assimilated youth. Because you can imagine where people were after the Shoah. How many young Jewish people were turned off to Judaism? Didn't want to have anything to do with that anymore after the horrors that they saw. But guess what happened after the miracles of 48 and 67 turned a whole new generation of Jews on to Judaism? I mean, I would just say at MJE, we have turned on a whole new generation of Jews to Judaism using Israel. We go to Israel in the summer, we march in the parade, we talk about it. It's like a, it's like, it's such a, you know, it's such a powerful part of what we do as educators and, and outreach people is we bring people to Israel because it's like the most exciting thing in the world. I mean, New York Judaism is cool, it's great, but it's, it's nothing like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. It's just not. And that's a knock on the door. The fifth knock, he says, the most important. For the first time in the history of our exile, divine providence surprised their enemies with a sensational discovery that Jewish blood is not free for the taking. It's not hefker. Hefker is a legal, Jewish legal term, means ownerless. Like if I say this tape recorder, which belonged to me, I said it's hefker, it's ownerless, and Henry picks it up, it's not stealing, it's yours now. It's broken, so it's not going to do anything. But, um, but what happened when a Jew was beaten up on a street in Europe? There is a recourse in Israel. Now, this was pretty devastating that the boundaries of Israel were breached and so many Jews were killed in like a European-style pogrom. But we have a recourse. And that's not to get back at our enemies, that's to make sure it doesn't happen again. By the way, that's very, very important to remember. Everybody thinks that we're just venting rage and anger against our enemies. The IDF does not do that. That's why it took so long before going in. They thought about this. President Biden warned Netanyahu and said, don't do what we did after 9-11, we were angry. You do foolish things when you're angry. Israel didn't do that. Israel was very methodical about this. Yeah, but no, but I'm talking about the moral issue, not strategically right now. Meaning they're going in to fix the problem. They're not going in to punish. There's a big difference. That's what the world thinks Israel is doing, and that's why she is accusing Israel of, you know, apartheid and ethnic cleansing. Okay, I don't know how many times we have to say, but the, the and, it, and it's terribly unfortunate, obviously, that an innocent has to die, but if, you know, if the areas the IDF has to fire into our hospitals, mosques, and schools, but if that's the only way to take out the killers. So this is very, very important. Let me just finish. I'll take your question one second. So the idea that that's a religious idea, that a Jew is beaten up and then nothing happens. 
You know, would that happen in New York? What's happening on campus now? Would it? If something happens, God forbid, we are relying on who to solve this? We're relying on the police. So what happens if the police turn into, they're not, thank God, I'm not saying they are. But what happens, like in Europe, if the police were just as anti-Semitic as the, as the mob that formed outside? They're going to turn a blind eye. And that's what happened for 2,000 years. So Rav Salvechik says that's what gives the state of Israel religious significance. It gives dignity to Jews. There's a recourse. And lastly, the sixth knock was that now there's a safe haven. And now that the era of divine concealment is over, after the Holocaust, Jews who have been uprooted from their homes can find a place to live. That, Rabbi Salvechik explained, has religious significance. And therefore, even if the government of Israel does not follow halacha, and I'm not happy about that, I would prefer that the government of Israel follows the Torah, okay? I don't like it being imposed on people. I like people being able to choose to be Jewish, you know, to live as a Jew. But, um, but um, that, that's really irrelevant. The state of Israel itself, because it, it, it doesn't guarantee, as you can see, but it comes the closest to doing whatever we can do to create a safe haven for Jews, that itself has religious significance. And therefore, we're not, certainly not anti, and we're not parva either. It has inherent religious significance, which is why you do everything you can to support the state of Israel in peacetime and in wartime, certainly in wartime. But even in peacetime, this class I usually teach in peacetime. Um, but it's important to know these different views. Yeah, question. Right. And I was just so deeply Right, that's it. Right. And I was just shocked. And she says, if it, I don't care if we have a line, if we don't have a line of Israel, I'm okay with that. As well, if we're, if we're going to continue killing innocent Palestinians. Right. And she couldn't wrap her head around right. the greater picture. And she, I said, don't call yourself pro Israel. And I actually called herself even Jew. Uh, because at the end of the day, like, how can you say you're pro Israel? and be a proud Jew if you're going to say we're committing genocide. Right. Right. It was a bigger picture because there's so many thousands of Jewish people doing that. So I said to myself, I was thinking, am I just myself? If it was a, like an, an Arabic person, I wouldn't have even... No, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I wouldn't have done the self-hating Jew thing. But I, I do applaud you. I, of course. I do applaud you for having the conversation. I think it's important to have a conversation... What do you do with someone that's brainwashed? Do you just write them off and say, especially if she's 25, right? Hopefully, listen, we try, I've spent my whole life trying to convince Jewish people that Torah has something compelling for their life. And a lot of people come in here thinking that 
It's a bunch of, I don't know, wives' tales, you know, made-up propaganda about religion. And um, you can change people's lives. Uh, minds, excuse me. It is not simple. But if people don't have an open mind, they're not interested in hearing things, then obviously not. But what we have to do is, is a certain narrative. And I said this in one of my videos this week. It was Goebbels, not Hitler. I quoted Hitler. But he proved to the world that if you just keep repeating a lie enough times, it will be accepted at some point by the mainstream. So the problem is there was never enough pushback against those lies when they started to be formulated. When I was in graduate school in Columbia, this was going on. This is not a new thing. In the late 80s, early 90s, this was a thing in the universities. Columbia was always a little ahead of its time when it came to this. Uh, it was, it was already established there. What we needed to do was cry when it first started. Now it's embedded in people's consciousness, these narratives, these false narratives. But I think, you know, I don't give up on people. I think that we can, with just wisdom, facts, information, knowledge, have rational conversations with people. What do you, what's your definition of apartheid? Okay, because South Africa was apartheid. Let's talk about apartheid in South Africa. Let's talk about what was done in Israel. And what would you do? I mean, you are aware of the fact that 1,500 Jews were killed. What would you do if you don't take out Hamas and you're pushing for a ceasefire? Because do you not want this? Now, some people might just keep going and, and say, you know, maybe it's not worth it to have a state. But then you have to keep going. So what would happen? 2,000 years of examples if the Jewish people don't have their own country. Oh, we're fine in America. Well, my grandparents did the same thing in Germany before they had to leave. And they were in Germany a lot longer than I've been in the United States and in Spain and in Portugal and in other countries. So most Jewish people, especially in their 20s, no offense to anyone in their 20s, are not knowledgeable in these areas. They're not. They're just going along with the, with, with the narrative. And the narrative has been very successfully pushed into the mainstream. And it's hard now to get it out. But, you know, I, I, what's the, look, what's the alternative? The alternative is just being angry and not doing anything to convince anyone. Okay. properly and just kill only Hamas. I said, you're not the idea. It's not that simple. They're behind the No, but that's a, real, so that's a real conversation. And what you could do is then find some stuff online about, from the, the, the problem is the IDF does these debriefings. I've been listening to them. And there are English subtitles, and sometimes they do them in English. Has anyone listened to an IDF debriefing since the war? You should listen to them. They're very specific. They're long. <laughs> But they get into, we found this over here, we're looking for this over there. They actually explain why they bombed areas and why innocent civilians were killed. They tried their best. But can I say, here's the other thing, though. During the Second World War, do you think anyone in England or in the United States, when they bombed the hell out of Dresden and these German, were worried about the innocent civilians that were dying? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't. It would probably be the moral thing to still be concerned but they were just trying to protect themselves from an aggressor, the, the, from the Nazis. And I don't know, our generation has lost that. Okay, these are Nazis. I don't know how else to put it. These are, this has nothing to do with territory and two-state solution. 
Read the Hamas charter, they're just trying to kill Jews. That's why it's exploding all over the world. It's not just happening in Israel. You know, and, um, but I applaud you for engaging in the conversation. And I think if you got to a place where she's saying, well, why can't they pinpoint? That's a very good question. She knows nothing about wars. I'm not saying I do, but like, it's like almost impossible. You do the best you can. That's why for, how many days did Israel tell the Palestinians to evacuate? And how long did Hamas try to keep them there? And why can't Hamas put them in the tunnels, keep them safe with them in the tunnels? Why can't Jordan take a few of them? Why can't Egypt take them from them? That's where they all come from. They can't take them. This is ridiculous. This is anti-Semitism to lay the blame squarely on Israel. And then somebody comes, whatever. We don't, we don't have to go back and forth, but it's... It's, it's an important conversation to get into. Any other questions just about the, the Zionism stuff? I know Leah's telling me we have to stop, but any questions just about the Zionism stuff that we did here? The anti... Um, I'm glad you brought it up. It's a great question. That's what this semester was for. This little series, rather, was for. Um, the neutral and the pro. So have I convinced everyone to be pro? Because I, I clearly have an agenda. I very personally believe... These are my teachers, Rav Salvechik, Rav Cook. I'm not saying Rav Yol Teitelbaum has nothing to stand on or the others. There are different views. We have to respect other people's views, but you have to figure out what you believe. And if you believe that the state of Israel itself has religious significance, then you're going to continue to support her, even if she does things that are, that are against your point of view here and there. And the state of Israel has, has done that many times. It's not a perfect government, not by any stretch of the matter. Rabbi, with, this, with the narrative... Yeah. that is now kind of worldwide. In the event that Israel does like Hebrew take out Hamas. Yes. What are Jews what do you think Jews are supposed to do worldwide? I think, Hamas is gonna manifest itself or this narrative that they're saying is going to manifest itself now that Muslim people all over the world are literally in Russia going after planes trying to lynch Jews. Right. I mean I think we're gonna have to organize ourselves in the diaspora. And, and the best way to do that is to try to get our elected officials and the people with the real power to, um, to protect Jewish people. I mean, I was very happy today. I saw on TV, and, and I don't even know if there's a legal basis for this. You know, they're ripping down all these posters, the hostages. So, the, so somebody got arrested who was doing it. And um, I, I think we just have to keep pushing for those types of things. I watched two very liberal shows, you know, accusing, you know, Jewish people of using their power. And that's what everybody does in the world. We have a lot of power in this country. We have a lot of, we have to use that. And I'm very much in favor of, of using whatever legal means to, um, uh, to either get rid of or silence some of the professors on college campus that are spreading some of these lies and are really polluting our young people's minds with misinformation and just outright lies. Um, I think we're gonna have to organize here in the diaspora and I don't think it's, it's not contained to Israel. This is, going, this is a Jewish problem. And anyone who still thinks that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, <laughs> okay? If that hasn't been debunked by what's going on in London and in New York, then I, I don't know how much more proof you need of that. So I just think that we have to continue to try to do as best as we can on the PR front. But I think more importantly, we have to defend ourselves. And I'm not saying we have to take up arms. 
Although it wouldn't be a bad thing if we learned how to protect ourselves a little better. I want to start offering Krav Maga classes here. And there are friends of mine that are now getting weapons in their homes. Actually, I didn't think it was true this past Shabbat. I talked to two or three friends of mine, like the biggest pacifists in the world, and they're just afraid. And they have a gun in their home. Very hard to get a carrying permit, but they have it in their home. I'm not telling you you should do that. Everybody has to make their own decisions. I started walking. I, I, I got pepper spray. I started walking around with pepper spray now. Because I want to continue to wear my yarmulke. I'm not taking my yarmulke off. And I'm telling people to wear their mug and davids, but be smart. And know how to deal with, you know, and, and, um, and, and maybe not walk alone. Maybe walk in groups. I, I think, we, you know, we've beefed up security here. Everybody should feel very secure. The, the security here has been, and the, and the NYPD has been great. They've had police cars here since the war uh, in front. But I do think that this is a, a new normal. Um, if you've spent time in Europe, you know what it's like to go to a shul in Europe? They ask you 10 questions. It's like, you, it's like you're getting on El Al, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, go to a kosher restaurant and it's like, I don't want to, you know, it, I don't want to over-dramatize, but it's a serious situation. Hopefully it can be contained. Um, the mayor here, um, by the way, Rabbi Moshe Davis on our staff, Moshe, who works for the mayor. He's the Jewish liaison to the mayor. So he's going to be doing a little talk Friday night after MG services. So if you want to join us, um, he's going to you know, talk a little about what the mayor's office is doing. Um, and I think we should be engaged and involved and not afraid. Listen to my interview with Rudy Rockman. I got a lot of inspiration from the last part of it my interview about not covering up the yarmulke, but really just standing tall. You know, yeah. Um, I want to thank you guys for coming. And we are, yes, some announcements. Um, so first of all, Ezra is having a dinner on this Friday night downtown. Um, or while starting a class series next Wednesday about why does Judaism matter? Very important in terms of this, because if we keep just defending ourselves so we can defend ourselves, so why are we defending ourselves to continue to be Jewish? What is it really, why does it matter? So, so keep coming next week, please, God. Yeah. Um, and then also, next Sunday, November 12th, we're having a blood drive mitzvah fair. Every room blood drive in honor of Jill's um, father. And we have like a mitzvah fair in the other room doing a lot of things. This year we decided to kind of focus it on Israel and just doing things for Israel. So we're um, collecting in, um, stuff for Israel and our walls in July should be going to Israel and bringing stuff. So I have like a list of stuff that's needed. If you want to purchase, come help us pack it. We're also doing um, like different things like mezuzah decorating, shot candlestick decorating, and each person's gonna get like a name of a hostage or victim that they could do the mitzvah like in honor of. Um, there'll be like a bunch of other things. You can check your mezuzahs, check your tefillin, and you can write letters also. We're going to be going to yeah, some IDF bases. We're going to deliver some letters to soldiers. They read English, most of them. So you can write a letter. I saw a video of another rabbi friend of mine who did this, and they loved it. He said it was so great. So um, if you can buy stuff um, that we posted. Is anybody, did everyone get it? Like the, I did, yeah. Okay, you, just, you can get the stuff on Amazon. Just get it delivered to home and bring it here on the 12th. We're going to pack it up, and Joe and I are going to hopefully go on the 13th the next day. And we're going to deliver it to, uh, to bases and Where stuff. Um, you can get it for me. I can send it to you right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Thank uh, you. And then we have our annual memorial lecture on Wednesday, November 29th from Goldberg. He's awesome. Um, you can see more information online.